Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? We have two guests, two food writers. I will let them introduce themselves and where you can find them. And the topic is might be a little bit of a weird one, but I think I but people are so heated about it that I think there'll be a lot of a lot of interest apparently. And it's about cornbread and whether you should eat it sweet and savory or savory and why the debate even exists and what that kind of says about tells us about regional food in in general and i think it can go to some interesting places first uh, introducing an alphabetical order uh we have returning guest uh adrian miller if you can just say hi and let the people know uh where to find you sure uh adrian miller the soul food scholar and you can find me on twitter and instagram at soul food scholar and on facebook i have my own fan page the soul food scholar Oh, nice, nice. And uh, we have first-time guest uh, Kathleen Purvis. Hey, how are you? Um, yeah, we can just tell the people where to find you. and Where to uh, find me. Right now you find me in my office, uh, <laughs> my home <laughs> office. It used to be the guest room where Adrian stayed the last time he was here. Uh, I was a food editor for newspapers for a long, 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 long time. And now I'm a freelance writer, like a lot of print journalists. Um, you can find me in the magazines, um, mostly the ones that focus on Southern food and, cult- and Southern culture. I do a lot of travel writing, and I do have a website, KathleenPurvis.com, and I link everything I, I write these days up there. And we have our co-host who popped in, the like promised, uh, Kenny, if you want to say hi to the people. What's up, guys? How you guys and, doing? And, 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 Go ahead. And tell them where to find you these days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, this is Kenny. Um, you guys know me. Um, you can find me now on Twitter at Lazarus Got Life. So Lazarus Lives, X3 is dead because that page got suspended for some odd reason. And you can find me at Lazarus Got Life Twitter. I like it. I like it. Oh, and um, in addition to cornbread and wherever else that the conversation takes us, I want to take some time to talk about grits because I got canceled <laughs> for for over grits a couple of months ago because I said I said I didn't like grits. Uh, I said grits, they're not bad, but I feel like all the flavor comes from the add-ins. And then it caused like a huge uh, controversy. Oh, yeah, so wrong. So sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, people got really upset with me. And but then, maybe, uh, What kind of grits are you using? Well, well see, th- th- that's that's what happened. I, the only grits I ever had were in uh, restaurants, and they were, um, what do you call it, instant grits. So somebody put me onto Anson Mills. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yes. I, got, I got Anson Mills, and... And uh, I was I was converted. And then um, but then what happened was I, I came back on Twitter and I was like, you know what? I was wrong. I made uh, grits. I started making grits like every single way. I even, <laughs> I even made grits. You made like, real like, grits, not yeah. fake grits. Yeah, blue grits, white grits, yellow grits. I made grits pudding, which is like dessert grits. Oh, yeah. I, found- I know grits pudding. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I found a recipe for that. My wife was getting sick of grits. Yeah, and then I got canceled by a lot of people <laughs> saying I was eating bougie grits. They were saying, um, what are those bougie grits that you're eating? Um, you're a yuppie. Uh, <laughs> instant grits. Oh, so they, they were telling you should have instant grits. No, Some people approve. You have standards. You can be better. Dude, you just can't win these days. Yeah, I can't win. So, uh, I'll tell you what, though, you were, Natalie Dupree did a book one time that was all grits, okay. all grits, and all the ways you can cook grits and every way you can top grits. And, you know, that's that's worth getting a hold of. It's a good book. But, you know, shrimp and grits, come on. The the, the yeah. brand grits that uh, <clears throat> T is getting, you know, a lot of people buy the grits. I forgot what the name brand is it's in the white and red box. I forgot what the name brand is, but that's like the grits that everybody buys. So Not like cream of wheat. <laughs> uh, no, Quaker? Is it Quaker? No, it's not Quaker. I can't remember what it's called, but um, they were. It's a supermarket brand that people get. Oh, you can get it anywhere. Costco, you can get it at you know uh, Kroger, mm. Safeway, wherever you know on the West Coast, Kroger, Safeway. But that's why they're ripping T's head off. They're like those bougie. You get grits in a bag? What do you mean? <laughs> Don't yeah, yeah, no, I got the Anson Mills grits, but no, but no, but Kathleen and Adrian seem to be fans of the Anson Mills. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, the company that had been called Geechee Boy does really good grits uh, there in the low country outside Charleston. They recently changed their name because they were worried about um, ownership of, you know, the the Geechee identity. Since it was a white-owned company, it bothered them. And so they've now changed the name. But they're really good grits. And I can get those all around here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. H- half half the people uh, celebrated my eating of Anson Mills, and the other half said that you know those are bougie in a bag gri- <laughs> in a bag grits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Supermarket grits are fine. So yeah, couldn't couldn't win. But um, back to cornbread. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm of Caribbean descent. My 
I grew up with Jiffy cornbread in the box. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's all, that's all, that's all I knew was Jiffy. It was sweet. It tasted like cake. You know, I felt good. I, I didn't have savory cornbread until like, um, they started bringing like Southern restaurants to Brooklyn and stuff. And I started having savory cornbread and my personal preference, I like it savory with like a little bit of like a slight sweetness, but that comes kind of from, um, I mean, I don't know the recipe, but to me, the sweetness seems to come kind of naturally from the corn. Like it's not not bitter but it's like probably 90 percent to the to the sweet side i don't know if you have a pref- preference kenny well hey tipo can i ask you something first yeah. so i know where you're coming from where were you raised i was raised in new york new york okay and you live in brooklyn now yeah i was raised in, in long island but i've lived in brooklyn longer than i've lived anywhere else in new york okay okay because one of the things that always occurs to me when people start talking about wanting a little sweet in their cornbread is to remember that originally when it was corn pone, people added sweet to it. They would put sorghum on it or they would put cane syrup on it. So it always, that idea of cornbread having sweetness it goes back a long way, right, Adrian? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think um, one of the reasons for that is uh, a lot of the corn that was used before you get to the industrial milling process and all this other stuff that happens is it was kind of naturally sweet. So um, to make a cornbread with sugar in it seemed kind of redundant, I think. Um, but you going back to slavery, I mean, you see all kinds of references in um, kind of the memoirs of enslaved people of them adding molasses to it, mm-hmm. um, you know, after a meal, almost like a de- making it a dessert that way. Yeah, so, that, yeah. and that added iron, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Very important iron to the diet if you, because a lot of your food was was topped with syrup of one kind or another in those days. Yeah. I was telling T that um, when it comes to, I'm, I live in Portland, Oregon, <clears throat> but my grandparents are from the South. They're from New Orleans, Arkansas. I have family from South Carolina. And I told him, I said, when it comes to cornbread, because T was saying savory cornbread. And I'm like, what do you mean savory? Savory cornbread. <laughs> yeah. He was talking about hot water cornbread. I said, oh, hot water cornbread. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I said, that's not sweet at all. And I said, it, it right. can be kind of <laughs> kind of dangerous to make if you don't know yeah. what you're doing. And right. when it comes to sweet cornbread, there's Jiffy. And then there's like my grandparents, my grandfather did all the cooking in my family. And my grandfather passed away in 1997, but he can make all different types of cornbread. But depending on what the dish was, if it was chili, if it was homemade chili, he used sweet, he makes sweet cornbread. If it was greens and neck bones or something like that, not using sweet cornbread. He, Interesting. He would just make the cornbread, all of it's from scratch, but it would just be the cornbread that tasted like bread. It was like a, a pan of cornbread. Use a um one of those um what is the skillets? Um cast iron the cast iron skillet, yeah. Yeah. So you use a cast iron skillet. So it, it depended on and with hot water cornbread, that was dependent on what it was always dependent on what you were gonna make with it, is what the type of cornbread you're gonna make. And you know, for me and, and in my family, like my I tell people like this, man, my grandparents were country. You know what I mean? So I had it all cow tongue, pig ears. <laughs> <laughs> pig tails, pig skin. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, that the, the yeah. hard crackle of that pig skin. You know what I mean? Have chicken feet, chicken feet. Yeah, alligator, all that stuff. You know what I mean? Rabbit. Oh, okay, okay. I never had alligator, but but in Haiti they have all that stuff. Cow, cow tongue. Oh yeah, chicken tripe. Feet, all this stuff. Yeah. Uh, alligator we don't have. I don't think it's native to the Caribbean, but yeah. So it just depends and see and see because you know T's Haitian. He's from the Caribbean and he's <laughs> he's grown up in New York City. What, what's the name of the, what's the name of the soul food spot that everybody goes to him? in New York Sylvia's Sylvia's, that's probably as good as it's gonna get it back in the day Uh, well well, you know it's funny Sylvia's is kind of an open secret that it's not really uh, I I don't want to slander it's because of the institution but (laughs) it's not really that great so people in New York don't really go to Sylvia's they're more likely to go to Amy Roots or some other ones that are uh, not as well uh, known but Sylvia everyone has to eat at at least like once or twice but it's uh, people are long time residents there telling me that it used to taste much better Mm. oh yeah yeah well you know she died a few years ago and her 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 descendants have taken it on and you know she's the one who had the touch yeah, yeah. So, so when I started going there, I'm not even sure she was even dead yet, but she wasn't actively working in it anyway. So I, um, when I started going there, like in the late '90s, like I, I've not, I've never saw her. I would try it, and it was just not. It was, it was good, but it wasn't like knock your socks off good. Like, like, like there's better soul food you can get in New York for sure. So, so living out here on the West Coast, growing up here in Portland, Oregon, you know, at one point in time, Portland had a thriving Black community, and due to gentrification, everything's all spread out, or people just left. But at one point in time, North and Northeast Portland had a lot of soul food spots, and 
all the people that owned them came from the South. So depending on where you went, cornbread is different. Yep. It depends on where you went. If, if the person was from Texas, it's different. There was, a, there was an older lady. They, these people have long gone passed away. But she had a, a black soul food spot here called the Tropicana. And she would make everything has sweet cornbread. Everything. And I believe she was from North Carolina or Texas or something like that. And so it just depends on where you go. Now, the soul food restaurants we have here now are ran by, I don't know, people. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> They're just ran by people. Okay. And they don't even know how to make cornbread. The cornbread is always cold, you know. Uh, hey, cold uh, cornbread, man. Uh, <laughs> you better off getting into a fight you, with someone. Unless you're crumbling it up in something like buttermilk, there's just no point. Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you rough. guys a question, though. Is is hot water cornbread is not the only savory cornbread, right? You can get regular baked cornbread with, without oh. sweetness. Well, yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of one of the, I mean, it's a battle, but I have fun with it. But, you know, there's just a lot of people that just insist that all types of cornbread should be savory. Um, so, the, you know, the, the cornbread you would make in a cast iron skillet. In addition, cornbread muffins, corn sticks, all of that stuff should be savory. And, you know, one thing I've been saying is, well, in terms of black cooks, almost every recipe that I've seen, and not all of them, have included some sugar. Now, I will say this, though. If you go back 50, 60, 80 years, you have a lot of African-American cooks in the South saying that cornbread shouldn't have sugar. You anticipated a question I was going to ask you because I've been doing a verbal poll ever since we planned this episode. And a lot of black people told me, except for my grandparents. And that was actually a later thing I was going to ask you if there was an age thing about that. Because uh, almost all the black people I spoke to said, we like it sweet. But then they then they would stop and think and say, but you know, I did have like some grandparents from Mississippi and whatever. And they would never use uh, sugar. I had some grandparents from like uh, Memphis and they never used sugar. So yeah, you actually anticipated a question I was going to ask with that one. Well, so this I'll ask Kathleen this because this in my experience, the people, the old school people like 80 years ago who were saying that cornbread should not have sugar were using white cornmeal. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is what, what I, I always heard. Yeah. So what I argue in my soul food book is I think that the sugar was basically cooks outside of the South compensating for the cornmeal, the yellow cornmeal that they were getting uh, in these in these cities outside the South. So the which, industrially which was milled, also, Adrian, what I've always understood yeah. um, and Michael Twitty and I have talked about this a lot is that when corn milling changed and, you know, the early part of the 20th century, when the big roller mills, the industrial mills came in and they were they were milling a, a, an inferior dried yellow corn that didn't naturally have as much sweet in it as much natural sugar in it as the old white cornmeal would have. And it used to be people, you know, you grew your corn based on what you were going to use that year. If you took it and had it, you know, ground in a local small mill. And so because it was made from a sweeter white corn, it was naturally had more flavor, had a little bit of sweetness to it. The yellow cornmeal was much cheaper And so it wasn't, I don't think just to the North, I think that people who were living on very low amounts of money were going for this cheaper industrial yellow cornmeal. And in order to be able to bake with it at all, you had to add some sugar. You had to add a little bit of white flour just to develop some gluten, just to get it to rise a bit and not be, you know, I mean, it was a brick if you didn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's as much a part of it economics is as much a part of it as geography. Um, and one thing I just want to point out is if you if you start looking going way way back and looking what uh, the what the indigenous people were doing, there were several plantings of corn during a year. And I remember that some of the tribes in the south had a specific corn that they called bread corn. Huh. Um, so that's just something to just kind of throw. No, and I, it's like dent corn. I've heard right. of dent corn that had a little dent in it as it dried, and that was you know you milled that up and you used it for your whiskey and you used it for your cornmeal. <laughs> So it had naturally some more sugar in it. So, you know, the stuff they started making after the, you know, early 20th century, nobody could bake with that stuff unless they wanted it to be really coarse, really flat. I'm almost thinking of, Adrian, have you ever been to um, Skylight uh, Barbecue, the original Skylight? Yep. They still do this cornbread on top of their, you know, when you get the little dish of the the basket of of, cornbread. chopped pork. They do this cornmeal that's really flat and really hard, almost dried a little bit. It looks like a roofing tile. <laughs> One of those adobe roofing tiles sitting on top of your of your pork. But it, it holds up well to something really moist like coleslaw and pork. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's very dense too. Yeah, it is. It is. You could whack somebody with one of those. Yeah, things. I'm googling pictures of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it looks like bricks. Yeah, yep. exactly. It's real thin, and that's that's what you're going to get these days if you if you take yellow industrial cornmeal and you mix it with some eggs and you try and bake with it, you're going to get something pretty flat unless you add you know a little bit of sugar to soften it, a little bit of wheat of uh, bread or flour to you know give it some some lift. You know, you're looking at some real dry cornbread. New York, uh, growing up, never really had a Southern food scene. Most of the food of Southern origin, because of Great Migration, like I grew up at a lot of soul food. I used to eat a lot of, at a lot of soul food restaurants. But with kind of gentrification and like this new food scene where all these different types of authentic foods, you know, like um, um, Portland, I'm sure has the same thing going on. I think Portland was ahead of New York with the, you know, gentrification food and stuff. Oh, yeah. There's been a bunch of places that popped up that, you know, call themselves like Southern places and pride themselves. Well, they'll give it a they'll give it a southern name. There's a restaurant here called Screen Door. Yeah. Oh. I've heard of that place. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you this, it's not bad. Yeah. It's not bad. You know what I'm saying? But I wouldn't take the Pepsi challenge against that and my grandmother's food, my grandfather's food, you know? But if you're if you want gentrified soul food, go to Screen Door, you know? Mm-hmm. Though chicken and waffles well, are good, pretty decent. Well, well, the places I'm talking about, they don't represent themselves as soul food. Like I, I think they consider themselves like, like like white southern food, which hasn't really had a big presence in New York, you know, at, at least no place I used to go to. So I didn't kind of recognize how the food was being made. Like when I got quite Cornbread from there. That's when I first discovered uh, unsweet cornbread. I've had some cornbread from places like that that are just straight up bitter. I've had some that have like actual bits of corn and even like peppers. Oh, uh-huh. oh yeah, yeah. In them. Yeah, I always think of that as a Texas thing. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of cheese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they they really pride themselves on like you know being authentic. So I had all these different, and that's when I first found out that you actually had those different types of cornbreads. But in general, I'm the kind of person that don't like things super sweet. Even my actual sweets, I prefer them as um. Um, not sweet is, is like the least amount of sweetness you can put in it. Like, like for example, sweet tea, I'm not crazy about when they like just. I'm not either. I don't really shit. care for sweet tea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I actually, I actually like some of the more bitter uh, cornbreads, but all my friends are like, you're crazy. Well, it's just like barbecue. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, it's all regional. <laughs> you know, in Texas, you better not put no sauce on no ribs. You know what I mean? <laughs> if you do, they might take the ribs and beat you over the head with them. Okay. But if you in Kansas City or in North Carolina, it's different. You know, we have Wait, got- there's specific people here in Portland they come from different places uh, there's a kid his name is um, oh damn it what is it Max is it Mac I can't remember his name but he, is, he does barbecue white dude from the south he don't put no sauce on his ribs yeah. Well, look, I got to stick up for sweet tea for a second. I mean, it's glorious when you can get that sweet tea where you put your spoon in it and it sticks straight up. Oh, my God. Yeah. I don't know how you do it. I'll just play it. I don't know how you do it. To each to each their own. But like my teeth, my teeth start hurting. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah. I had it in Florida, man. It made my teeth hurt so bad. I was just like, what? Why are you doing this to yourself? Like, what the hell, man? Uh, <laughs> I've seen some I've seen some places try to claim it's a north a north south divide. I've seen some places say no, that's a myth. Uh but the racial divide explains it more. Your piece was one of the pieces that talked about uh the racial divide. Uh Kathleen's piece won an award an award, right? Yeah, uh sure did. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not saying this just because you're here, but your your piece was the best written, uh, oh. most enjoyable piece out of. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, <laughs> that's you know the most interesting stories that I've gotten to do over the years have been trying to explain the the racial differences in Southern food and the why, you know, where did these come from? Because, you know, as long as you, you know people better, you understand their food a little better, it's it's going to make all of us get along better. It's just the my right. basic way of seeing life. My favorite, though, was macaroni and cheese. That was fun to write about. Man, yeah. I got blasted Tell for that. Tell me about that one, because that's controversial. <laughs> that's too. very controversial. Oh, yeah. You want to start a fight, get going on macaroni and cheese. Okay, let me ask y'all this. Uh, breadcrumbs or macaroni and cheese? Yes or no? No. 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 Unless you want to go if to you jail. you make a good macaroni and cheese <laughs> and you bake it right, you know, you're going to have enough of a crust on there. Why on earth would you need breadcrumbs? Yeah, no. Yeah. That's like, that's like, um, like the same way my grandparents, when they would make cornbread, they would use their leftover cornbread to make dressing. Oh, yep. yeah, I do that. But a lot of people think that. stuffing and dressing is the same thing. I'm like, in whose house? Oh. 
Well, unless, <laughs> unless you want to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, boo. Yeah, don't I mean, ever. It's all dressing. Even if even if we put it inside a chicken or a turkey, in my family, it was still called dressing. Yes. Oh, interesting. In fact, the first time I ever saw, I've, I've written about this before, when I was like 11, 12 years old, I'm watching TV one night and a commercial comes on for something called stovetop stuffing. And I turned to my mother and I said, Mom, what's stuffing? And she said, oh, that's what the Northerners call dressing. And <laughs> so it was for us, it was the same thing. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I shut him down, didn't I? Interesting. <laughs> Silence follows. But yeah, I'm, and now when I do dressing, I do half cornbread and half um, sort of toasted and dried out white bread. Mm. Because they, it, if with just cornbread alone, it could be really heavy and really gritty. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I like to mix the two. Yeah, my mom, she does a uh, half cornbread and half of the Pepperidge uh, Farms. Yeah, yeah, bread. yeah. That yeah. The dried breadcrumbs. Yeah, yeah, I usually just do my own, but. Yeah. Same thing. I mean, I'm not crazy about a lot of the gentrifying that's happening in uh, Brooklyn, stuff like that. But I can't lie. Some of the new restaurants that they, that they have, including uh, these Southern ones, I've been pretty good. That was the first time I had real stuffing or dressing, whatever you want to call it. Like growing up, I grew up with stovetop stuffing and I loved, I loved, I loved stovetop stuffing. And then when I had real stuffing, I was kind of like really shocked at how much better it was. <laughs> it's not even really, it's not even really the same thing. It's not it's even like the same small. thing. It's not even the same planet. Yeah, it's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like how Taco Bell, whether you like it or not, it's um not really Mexican food. Like I remember when I, when I went to a <laughs> right. Taco, I, I, I went to a Taco Bell once, and it was full of Mexican like day laborers. And I even what? asked them, yeah, yeah, but no, but no, but it was interesting. I asked them, I was like, how do y'all eat this? You're Mexican, and they said this is so different than Mexican food. We don't think of it as Mexican food. Yeah, at all. yeah, yeah. To eat something yep. different. So, yep. so, so Taco Bell actually has infu- infiltrated Mexico, and it's a hit in Mexico because it's so different. They don't even think of it as a competition for like what they're eating at I, home. I didn't know that burritos were not a real thing. I didn't <laughs> well, know that. I, I think they were created. I think they were created in, in Texas. I think they were Texas. Yeah, food. but it's not an actual authentic Mexican dish. But yeah, it's, it's not authentic yeah. Mexican, at all. Uh, I mean, it's authentic in terms of American Mexicans. Well, yeah. Like so, some some Mexicans made it, but it's not authentic to Mexico. I found that out from from Rob Walsh and someone else. Oh, that's hilarious. I'm gonna have to look into that. I didn't know that was happening. Y- yeah, yeah. So so um, Saturday. You know, it's funny. Saturday Night Live. I, I remember this um saturday night live when um taco bell announced that they were gonna start opening in mexico like saturday night live made a joke everybody was laughing and then ended up being a hit it's taco bell knew what they were doing <laughs> like people don't view it as competition don't think it's even the same food <laughs> yeah it's like going to mcdonald's when you're in paris it's <laughs> it's just not right <laughs> i think that's awesome I gotta check that out. So, uh, tell us about your article, like like what your findings were about. I mean, I mean, I obviously read the article, but you know, for the people at home who have not uh, read it, who are you talking to, me or Adrian? Oh, I was talking to uh, you, Kathleen. Oh, okay. Uh, so the cornbread one. It, yes. Um, you know, it was a story that I had wanted to do for a long time, and I had an editor who was afraid of stories like that. His his thing was, no, 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 you don't ever bring up race differences, and I'm like. Dude, if you don't, you're not talking about the real world. So actually, Tony Tipton Martin was had just started on her uh, Jemima Code product, project, and she was doing an exhibit in Charlotte. And so I had done an interview with her for my column to let people know about her exhibit and that she was coming. And I put a link up on Facebook just saying, you know, hey, I talked to Tony Tipton Martin and, and you know, this subject of cornbread came up. And my Facebook comments just took off through the roof, including my own brother, who slammed me for daring to say that there was good cornbread with sugar in it. Um, But I also, I was, everybody who commented was against the idea. And I realized the problem was that I had most of the people who were following me on Facebook at that time, this was a few years ago, and they were all white. And so what I was hearing was just the white side of it. And what intrigued me was how angry people got about this. It's almost like an identity thing. You know, how dare you diss my grandmother kind of stuff. And so I, when that editor who would never let me uh, do the story left a few months later, I immediately dove in and said, hey, can I do this story to my new editor who said, absolutely. And the funny thing about it was we had just started tracking um, audience who was opening and closing stories. We had 
just gotten the technology that allowed us to see in real time what stories people were reading and how long they were spending. It was the first story for my newspaper, the Charlotte Observer, that went viral when we got to watch it go viral. And the editors were all standing there looking at the display and, you know, like scratching their heads. And one of them turns to me and goes, oh, my God, it's our first viral story and it's about cornbread. Who would have ever guessed? And I said, well, I would have guessed. I could have t- I've been telling you guys this for years. This is what <laughs> people really care about. So, you know, it, it, the story did kind of take on a life of its own. Um, one of the things that I heard as a big complaint, and you always hear this when you write about food cultures, well, I'm black and we don't put sugar on our cornbread. Or, well, I'm white and my grandmother always put sugar in her cornbread. I mean, America is a melting pot. You know, maybe not melded as well as it should be, but we, we affect one another. We all bump up against each other and pick up food likes and dislikes from our friends, from the restaurants we go to, from all these different inputs. So it's impossible to have a very clean, you know, one or the other in American food. You know, it, it's funny you saying that because when me and T was talking about this before we did the show, we, did, we talked to us about two weeks ago and he was saying that some white people were saying one thing. I was like, well, I find that kind of odd because I know white people that make soul food the same exact way my grandparents do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my family did. I mean, I when I read about soul food, I'm reading about the same kind of food cooked the same way that my family in Georgia did. Yeah. So in some ways, what you're looking at is is rural food. Yes. Versus urban food. Yes, absolutely. And my and my grandparents came from rural areas in Louisiana and Arkansas. So right, yeah. mine came from Georgia, and I, you know, I mean, I we had farms still in the family when I was growing up, and that really affected how they cooked and what they cooked. Yeah. You know, so I, I was at first found that very puzzling when I first went into food writing and really started thinking about it. I would think, well, wait a second. My grandmother's favorite food was chitlins. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but you know, that's something else that I kind of noticed too is um, I feel like there's a rural and urban thing and also like a socioeconomic thing. Um, For example, there's some things I noticed that my family did in the Caribbean that's very similar to what um black people um, do here. Like, for example, uh, I was rocking with Kenny until the alligator. We, we don't have any alligators in, in <laughs> In Haiti, it's not. It's not happening. I mean, if we had, it, I'm sure we'd be eating it too. But you ever seen um, a cooked the, pig the, tongue? Oh yeah, oh, okay. Uh, that cow tongue, ears, oh, yeah. feet, chicken feet. And one thing that we do that I notice a lot of black people here don't do. This is one difference: is um, we break the bones with our teeth and suck the marrow out and do all that <laughs> stuff. And, and that's the one thing a lot of black uh, people here didn't rock with me on. They're like, okay, you're on your own with that one. You know, like uh, <laughs> where you crack it. But I met a lot of white people from the south who grew up in farms and stuff, who who do that. People were telling me, like white people were telling me, yeah, my, my grandmother, my mom, they break bones with their teeth. They um, <laughs> suck the marrow out. And I was like, white people are breaking bones? And, and, and that's, actually, that's what makes food writing and food stuff so fascinating to me. Like, it's, it's like a big uh, puzzle or mystery you have to like mm-hmm. unravel. Yeah, you know, Tipo, my folks, my folks did that, but my folks were raised in the Depression. And in the Depression, you didn't waste anything Mm-mm. that might have either flavor or sustenance or vitamins you know I mean people were desperate for food and nutrition in those days no matter which side you know of the color line you fell on they were all poor in those days and so they came up with my folks had a lot of habits still that my friends all thought they were very strange yeah I was gonna just to underscore that point when I was writing my soul food book you know going into that book I had just bought into the idea that soul food was wholly created for black people it was distinct but you know by the time I finished my research and was writing in that book, I was just, I even wrote in the book, um, it's more about, I thought, class. Yep and place than race. Yep, mm-hmm. absolutely. If you, and you know, you go historically, I mean, the only reason why you would eat chitlins, which is probably, <sighs> my stepmom still eats, she'd buy chitlins every Christmas and it stinks. Mm-hmm. I won't eat it. I've seen her clean them. I don't even want to tell you what I saw in them. But <laughs> the only reason why you would eat that is if you didn't have anything else. <clears throat> oh, to the contrary. Uh, chitlins yeah, has a really deep, them. deep tradition. I mean, rich white people were eating chitlins since the Middle Ages. So oh, yeah. it was actually a prestige dish. No, I'm just I'm talking about from for African Americans is coming out of slavery. No, no, it was a it was a prestige dish. I mean, if you even if you go back to West Africa, there are a lot of cases of people eating uh, innards. Because there, some believe that it had the life force of the animal. So uh, it, it was not, it's not something that was looked down upon. In fact, a lot of cultures around the world eat guts. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's a that's a more recent critique of Chitlins. It's well, you know, it probably is too. I noticed with a lot of things when they get associated with um, black people, especially in America, they kind of end up getting getting a stigma. Like and and vice versa. Some things start with black people, and then when they uh, become popular or start with poor people, like um. For example, uh, lobster used to be a poor food. Right. I didn't know. I didn't know that L- lobster was a low class cheap. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and 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 then I said the free lunch that you used to be able to get, like you know, 18th century. If you went into a to a place that served beer and they were offering a free lunch, it was usually lobster. They had to give it away. Yeah, it was super you know, cheap. Considered a trash like- food. Yeah, considered low class food. So I'm 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 not surprised it was a time where chitlins might have been considered like a high class. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I'm not I'm not saying that at one point in time it was a high class. I know, I know in Italian culture they eat it is called uh sofrit, which is like it's pig guts. You know what I mean? And they fry mm-hmm. it. It's fried. It's not it's not um, boiled the way uh, black people boil it. But there is there so historically, depending on where you come from, if you were enslaved on a plantation, the chitlin was described as the leftovers. And this is, I'm talking yeah. antebellum. I'm not talking like, you know, colonial. Oh, no, no. Yeah, no. But what I found in my research is that that just wasn't really a uniform uh, view of chitlins. In fact, I found a story where a slaveholder beat his enslaved cook because he didn't think she made the chitlins well enough. So it, everybody was eating chitlins. It was not just black people and looked down upon. I mean, I think the idea that this was left over is, is that chitlins were a byproduct of the hog killing process. So in the sense, yeah, it was leftovers because because there was just all of these things that had to be consumed immediately because you didn't have a refrigeration or a way to preserve it. And so I think that's where that idea of it as leftovers of the master's garbage comes into play. But when you look at the records, I mean, a lot of people were eating chitlins. Have all, of you, people. Eat, have all of you eaten chitlins? I've never eaten them in my, in my life. You're not missing not anything. Not, I'm not missing anything. You have to get past the first taste. It's like that first bite has sort of this, um, it almost tastes like bad breath. To me, a little bit. But when you get past, it's like kissing somebody with bad breath. You know, you get past that first couple of kisses and you don't care anymore. Well, this is making, this whole discussion is making me sad because obviously you all have had bad chitlins because (laughs) I have had good chitlins. I still eat chitlins, only like, I'm like your grandmother, I guess. I have them uh, on Thanksgiving and New Year's. That's the only time I really have them. But my brother makes them well because he takes the time to clean them and remove a lot of that stuff that gives it a bad, really bad smell and bad taste. And so if you have chitlins that are made well, it's one of the most delicious things around. Oh, the second bite is wonderful for me. <laughs> yeah, I just well, don't I know thought, where to find. I just know where to find them, even if I wanted them. So, so I can't. <laughs> well, that's a whole another. Yeah, that's a whole another story. Oh, but one thing before we, I just want to say one thing about chit, uh, lobsters. There are even uh, instances where enslaved people were getting lobsters, and they were getting so much lobster that they actually started complaining to slaveholders to stop giving them so much lobster as rations. So yeah, it just I'll shows you the social mobility of these foods. Like they, they can go from prestige to disregarded um, in short periods of time. I'll to give you another example here. Um, a trendy food amongst uh, like um, yuppies and gentrifiers and stuff now is bone marrow. Uh, because oh, yeah. it turns out bone marrow is actually more nutritious than the, the meat and everything else in, in the animal. It's actually the most nutritious part of the animal. It turns out like when, when carnivores eat their, their kill, a lot of them actually, the bone marrow before they even get to the meat, you you know, and for health reasons now, I guess you can call bone marrow like reclaimed. So like I go to some <laughs> places and they have like bone marrow soup or bone marrow on on crackers. And, and now it's like all elevated. When, when I used to go to school, they would be horrified. I, I, I'll never forget. Like I was born in America, but my parents were immigrants, but never told me you can't do this around American people. I didn't know. So when I started going to school, going to people's houses, I'd go to my friend's house and I would, you know, eat the chicken, get to the bone. I would crack the bone, start sucking the meat. Then I looked up and everyone is just looking at me like uh, they don't know where I came from. And they were just like horrified. And I, I was like, oh, OK, I guess we're not supposed to do this. And I went to a fancy restaurant like uh, about a year and a half ago. And they had really expensive uh, bone marrow on this, this nice, fancy presentation. And um, next to some pate, it was it's just funny how, how things change. Yeah, Tipo, I was in the first time I ever went to San Francisco back when I was a baby food writer. This is 30 years ago. Uh, I got to go out to a really fancy restaurant called The Fifth Floor. And one of the things they had on the menu was pig's feet. And I had to order them if only so that I could go to the phone, call my father and say, you won't believe what I just paid for pig feet. (laughs) Did the menu call them trotters? Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember. Actually, I think they did. (laughs) But it was like, you know, I couldn't believe they were getting that much money. 
yeah. for something that was just, you know, a part of my childhood, throwaway food that was, you know, cheap and, and inexpensive, but delicious. You know, one thing I found very interesting in that tweet, there was a tweet from Michael Harriet in the root in the root that went viral because he said, you don't put sugar in cornbread. And a lot of black people were responding, um, you know, are you crazy? Cornbread has to have sugar. Some black people out showing Kenny, you know, were like saying, oh, and, and you were saying the same thing. You know, there was exceptions on both sides. Right. But it was mm-hmm. mostly um, white people saying that you never put sugar with some, with a few exceptions as well. But one thing I find interesting in the crosstalk in the comments, this part surprised me. Um, a lot of people, a lot of white people were calling the sweet corn, the sweet cornbread, Yankee cornbread. And then there are black people responding to them like, hey, I'm from the South and my whole family eats it with sugar. And the white people were acting like surprised. And I was like, that's interesting that because these two people are both from um, Tennessee. And and this, this this guy was saying no one in Tennessee eats, um, eats it sweet. And this black person from Tennessee was like, what are you talking about? My whole family's from Tennessee. We all <laughs> eat it sweet. But but I, I found it fascinating that there's like two different worlds. Like, you know, it's not officially segregated anymore but there's still a lot that people don't know about their neighbors or the other racism customs because both these people from tennessee and both didn't know the opposite type of cornbread existed interesting yeah the thing that always surprises me in this conversation and and not just cornbread same thing comes up with pimento cheese same thing comes up with barbecue it's the defensiveness yeah. That people have built into what they consider to be their clan's food. Clan with C, please. Um, Ronnie Lundy talks about this a lot. She's, you know, an excellent writer, particularly in writing about the uh, um, the Appalachian area. And, you know, once upon a time, what you ate came from right around you. It was grown by either your own family or the families right around you. And that was a part of how you identified yourself. You know, I'm a member of this family and this is how we do it. And, you know, that that has really evolved into very, very much of a territorialism among us that I find interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's probably a lot of people were bringing up their cities and states when they were making their cases. So I agree with you on that one. Uh, that territory seems to be a big part of it, as well as with family, because people, for some reason, grandmothers came up. <laughs> well, because in a lot of these things that's how we still experience them is our memory of what our grandmothers did because our families changed over you know the 70s the 80s the 90s american cooking began to change a lot i was wondering if the yankee cornbread thing came as a result of the great migration if like oh maybe, absolutely i think don't you adrian yeah absolutely yeah so I, so they're calling it a northern thing but it's just a different group of southerners went north and brought the sweet cornbread with them seems to make sense to me well but but even i, I don't think so because uh, before even the Great Migration, you had northern food publications printing cornbread recipes with sugar. Really? Yeah. Like, uh, I can't remember. Like, you know, the, the Boston cooking schools and... Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that, those, that genre. Right. Yeah. So I, I just think... I think it was something, I still think it was something that people encountered that cooks did to improvise when they got outside the South. Right, or got uh, outside of a rural area. Yeah, but you know, to Kathleen's point, and and other food writers have told me this, I think sugar cornbread was happening even before then. So I think it was kind of a both and. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about the mac and cheese thing, though. I didn't know you had a mac and cheese article. I would have liked to... Yeah, that one fascinated me so much, that whole issue of how mac and cheese plays this completely different role in families and when it's served and how it's served. And it it took me by surprise the first time I encountered it. I was doing a talk in front of a um, middle school class. I think they were sixth graders. And it was right before Thanksgiving. So I was taking them through, you know, let's talk about what your family always puts on the table. And so I'm writing it down as kids are hollering it out. And this one black child said, macaroni and cheese and all the white kids in the room turned around and went what you have that at thanksgiving why would you have macaroni and cheese at thanksgiving because in white culture macaroni and cheese became this daily like a weeknight not very special thing and in black you know families it's revered it's on every holiday table whether it's you know fourth of july easter thanksgiving christmas always the mac and cheese is on the table and i i started you know i never encountered that and so i had to find out why there's a there's a racial divide on whether it's a side or a main as well right there is yeah if you're a white family it's a main dish and it's not you know i mean it's my mother made great macaroni and cheese but it was something we might have had on a Wednesday night, usually with like leftover ham stirred into it. Um, 
you know, a lot of white kids who were in latchkey families, the blue box was the first thing they ever were allowed to cook for themselves when they were, you know, when they got home and the parents weren't home. What's the blue box? Craft. Oh, craft. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like a cheap food. It was like chicken pot pies, you know, you could always have, you could make yourself a chicken pot pie when you were eight. And that's how people thought about macaroni and cheese as kind of, you know, subsistence, a snack, nothing terribly special. Um, and then the black community it is revered and you know there's the whole thing about who can make it i i, I had I, I had the blue box growing up as well when i was a last key kid i just assumed somehow you guys had a special southern because everything that i know there's always a special southern brand <laughs> so i assume you guys had your own like local now if you're gonna if you're gonna make macaroni and cheese you better not get that out of no box <laughs> exactly you go buy the elbow macaroni and then however your family recipe is. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know, say what mine is, but whatever your family recipe is, that's what you do, but you do not use craft. But I assumed if he did use it in a box in the South, I assumed it was going to be like a special Southern brand, you know, like, cause I'm, I'm used to everything that I know in a box. Um, people from the South tend to have their own. Everything's from scratch. Local. Br- that's true. No, nobody's picked up the gauntlet on that one. <laughs> no, it's still throwaway food, no matter where. Because that's something that gets you in trouble. Like, you know, some people use, I had an ex-girlfriend. She makes her macaroni and cheese with sour cream, a little bit of milk, and she used Velveeta to keep it creamy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And some people yeah, don't. I heard that. Yeah, some people yeah. don't. And it still gets that yeah. crust over the top, too, because she puts the yeah. cheese on top. And in black families, it's always baked. It's yes. never made on the, on the stove. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, don't like it. I don't like it on the stove because that crust. Yeah, that crust you got to have that brown crust. Yeah, you got to have that brown. Yeah, that look, that brown crust is important. Very yeah. important. Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that the breadcrumbs were a cheat, though. That's interesting to know. Because I'm I'm okay with, with or without breadcrumbs as long as it's crunchy. Yeah, I would say no breadcrumbs. No, 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 that's no. A, that's no, a shortcut. No breadcrumbs. I mean, and the, you know, the thing about macaroni and cheese is, um, and like in, in black families, or at least in my black family, we don't eat macaroni and cheese very often. It's only on those... But it's on a special it's a special occasion. Okay, absolutely. Right? Yeah. yeah. Kind of like potato yeah. salad. You don't eat it on a regular basis. It's, it's a celebration. Food. Yeah. I, I interviewed Adrian for the story I did on this. And it and it is very much a celebration food because it's really rich ingredients. Oh, yeah. And to do it right, you got to make a big batch, you know, a big nine by 13 pan. So you need a lot of people around. Hey, um, one thing I've been wondering uh, just because I've been writing about barbecues, when did mac and cheese become a barbecue side dish? You know, I'm noticing that too. And I'm wondering if the, the places I see it, um, Adrian, and I am seeing it a lot down here lately in the South, but it seems to be in barbecue places that are very Texas influenced. Okay. You know, they got brisket, they got ribs. And they've almost always got macaroni and cheese. Yeah, I'm just saying. And I wonder if that's where it's coming from. Yeah, okay. Texas has an outsized influence when it comes to um, barbecue. Like, it's, I mean... At least in New York, the barbecue that's uh, infiltrated has been like all like Texas. Yeah, there used argue, to be a bunch of Carolina places up there, but they've they've all disappeared. I think for the most yeah. part. I, I would argue that that's you'll see that across the country. In Denver, we had four, we had five new places open in the last year. Barbecue places, four of them were Texas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a, a Carolina place opened. I was just so happy to get a different uh, type because I was just so. I mean, I like brisket, but th- there's like a brisket trend or fixation. Uh, it's even made the price of I don't know. If is nationwide, but the price of brisket has gone up. That used to be a cheap cut. Oh yeah, it's gone through the roof. It's like Casa Buca. You know, it used to be able to be. It used to be poor food, but not anymore because people finally caught on. See, see, th- this is funny. This is an example of how people are adamant. Um, I have this thing where when we have a guest that's going to come on, I announce it in our chat room. So if people have questions that they want to ask the guests, they can ask. And I put in the chat room. I said, um, I'm having a show based on this tweet that went viral that caused a big argument, and then. Adidas Elitist in the chat said, This Michael Harriet dude is an effing clown. Cornbread, Johnny Cakes, Pan Maze is sweet. It's physically impossible for there not to be a semblance of sweet <laughs> to it. If you're making polenta, that's a different story. <laughs> and then he proceeds to call him a bunch of expletives. So, I mean, people are people are passionate and, and they know it all. So, like, what do you say to that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it goes to Kathleen's earlier point, right, about the defensiveness. And I would add self-righteousness. But, uh, you know, I kind of agree with that person's sentiment, but I'm a I'm a lover, not a fighter. So I wouldn't throw in all the expletives. But um, I just sit back because I've, I've read thousands recipes and I've just noticed that in general, if it's an African-American cook, there's going to be some amount of sugar in a basic cornbread recipe, except, you know, that's interesting. You brought up hot water cornbread. I just can't think of any 
He's saying it's physically. That. He's saying it's physically impossible for there not to be a substance of sweet. Yeah, but where and where is he from? He's from the Bronx. <laughs> okay, okay. I've had I've had uh, non sweet cornbread. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm only saying that I'm, I don't want to say he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. But he's from the Bronx, so I don't. I'm not shocked that he's saying <laughs> what he's saying. <laughs> he's probably never had hot water cornbread. If you put look if you had sweet hot water cornbread, somebody would fight you for that. Like, you don't do that. That doesn't yeah. even make sense. Baked cornbread too. Like, you know. Yeah, just don't bring up sugar and grits because that will get you really ugly. Yeah, that will really get you. Yeah, that's blasphemy. You, you think you think people were tripping on you about having bagged grits? Wait till you say you put sugar in them. <laughs> Well, well, I already knew about that. So when I made the grits pudding, which is like a sweet version, I didn't yeah. even tweet that. I left that alone. I, <laughs> I knew it wasn't You should work. not be afraid of what you cook, man. You should be able to proudly say what you cooked. <laughs> no, no, I got canceled bad. And no, I know, because you know what it is too? People think that they know everything when it comes. I know Southern food is the most defensive food I've encountered, right? So it's like, uh, people don't say, oh, well, you know, I disagree. People will feel blasphemed. Because they, be, oh, yeah. you know why? And this is crazy. Is because for a lot of us, our grandparents mean so much, or our parents, whoever is the cook, means so right. much to us. And we, re- we remember those. Because, you know, one thing about being, uh, you know, coming up the way I came up, I can't speak for everybody, but coming up the way I came up, I came up poor. I came up broke. You know what I'm saying? But I come from a blue collar family. One thing we did have was them holidays and the, the, those those spreads. Yeah. And you ain't going to forget the way that peach cobbler tastes or that seven up cake or that uh, you know right. uh, pineapple upside down cake. You're not going to forget. Preach. You're not going to forget how that tasted. So when somebody tries to tell you that the way that you was eating it when you was five was the wrong way to eat it, them is fighting words. That's the funny thing. You're not even saying the way that they were eating it is wrong. You're saying, hey, I tried it this way. But what they hear is you eating it that way means you're saying right, you right. was <laughs> right. wrong. But, but, th- but then that was funny is I found the grits pudding recipe in like a, a Southern recipe. Like, you know, so there are some Southern people, but they don't call it like regular grits. It's, it's like making rice pudding. You wouldn't put sugar in rice. But if you're making rice pudding, that's not really the dish rice. That's a whole uh, different dish. But I'm like, you know what? No nuance happens on Twitter. Twitter is not, this place is for nuance. Twitter is not one of them. Like, yeah, 140 characters is no way to be subtle. No. Yeah, ex- yeah exactly. So uh, <laughs> there's no room to put, this is not like a traditional grits dish. I'm not making grits. I'm making grits pudding. Like, I'm already out of characters and people are going crazy. So, <laughs> yeah. And they um, won't let it go. It'll go on for weeks. Yup, yup, it'll it'll go on for. I mean, that Michael Harry guy, he's gonna be the cornbread guy to a lot of people. Because for a lot of people, that could be the first time they ever heard heard of him. He, he could become a White House correspondent, do something very major in his life. And because of Twitter, there'll be someone who'll always think of, hey, isn't that the cornbread guy? <laughs> cornbread yeah. in a horrible way. In general, I just wanted to get your thoughts just about the evolution of, I mean, this is a very broad question, but I'm interested in just particular examples or articles or weird factoids, or I feel like both of you have probably encountered a lot of interesting, for example, I would have never thought to ask about the Chitlins thing or knowing that in a lot of places in the South, they were considered um, highbrow. So rather than ask anything specific, I want to know if you have any general things that you think people find interesting about different class and racial evolutions of Southern food. Also, paradigms that we didn't even think about like you know that aren't even class or race uh well i mean i mean we, we talked about some of this stuff so to me what's been interesting is uh and you actually mentioned it earlier so i would say it's just uh, the way that um soup food has social mobility how over time di- it's valued differently by different people um but one thing that's always puzzled me is you know to a point you made earlier is how when african-americans eat something even though everybody else eats it it's somehow denigrated um so the fact that powerful stereotypes exist for fried chicken and watermelon when a ton of white people ate the very same foods has always intrigued me. And that that's a reflection of the power dynamic, I think. And then the other thing that's always intrigued me is just how geography shapes a lot of this. Um, so those are the things I think about. That's the truth. So one of the things I'll throw out there that I'm seeing happen here in North Carolina um, is for a long time there, the only Black-owned restaurants you could find around, you know, the big cities of North Carolina were soul food restaurants. It was like, okay, you've got this one niche. This is the food you're going to make. 
When I go there, this is the food I'm going to expect to get. And what we're now finally seeing are black chefs who are breaking free of that. Um, And we have this group of black chefs here who started a series of dinners that's still going on called Soul Food Sessions. Mm. And their idea was to show, first of all, to take those tropes, you know, watermelon and fried chicken and, you know, macaroni and cheese and turn them on their heads and do fine dining, high elevated cuisine versions of them. But also to show that here are all these very talented black chefs who were not getting the chance to be executive chefs and owners. And that has really changed hugely ever since they started doing these. I think they've been doing the dinners about three years. And so now we have a very exciting restaurant that's open here called Leah and Louise. Um, by Greg and Sabrina Collier. And they're both from Memphis. They both grow up very poor. Their um, style in the restaurant is very much Memphis juke joint. But the food is Greg Collier just doing a fine dining let go on, on all of this stuff that's Southern ingredients and elevating them. And it is, it's amazing food. It's the most interesting restaurant in the city right now. And so I see things like that finally happening. People allowing black chefs to be seen in a different light than they were for a very long time. Um, Ricky Moore in Durham at, at Saltbox Seafood <coughs> Joint. He's another example. I'm mean, starting to see this pop up all over North and South Carolina. And for somebody who's been writing food here for 35 years, I'm damn glad to see it. Long overdue. It's sort of like finally seeing white tablecloth Mexican food when all anybody's allowed it to be is, is snack food and Taco Bell. Um, you know, just to add to that, two things that I think are very exciting that I'm seeing is, uh, one, I'm seeing a lot of African-American chefs embrace soul food. I think um, several had held it at arm's length because of the stigma associated with it as being unhealthy or poverty food or slave food. So to see people embracing that, that's cool. And I think another really interesting thing is uh, we're seeing a lot of black chefs now trying to connect with Africa. So we're seeing diaspora dinners where there might be a a flight of dishes that start with West Africa and go to the Caribbean and then come to the South or other parts of uh, the black experience in the Americas. And so I'm seeing more and more of that. And I think that's really cool. I just told Adidas Elitis while you were talking that um, bitter bitter cornbread and savory cornbread does exist. And he put a crying emoji. <laughs> so it really it really broke broke him up. Um, I, I read something else from you about, about pecans. Actually, how do you pronounce it? Pecans or pecans? Oh, Lordy, do we have to get into this? Oh, See, that's, a, that's another one. <laughs> I have my extensive, yes, I did write a book on pecans. I say pecans. Uh, sometimes I say pecan. It depends on what I'm referring to. Um, my my own unofficial research of asking people everywhere I went when I was doing this book um, what, what it came down to is rural versus urban. If you want to sound country, and some people do want to sound country, or you are from a rural area, you tend to say pecan. And if you're from an urban area or you want to sound a little more educated, you say pecan. And my parents, my mother was from Atlanta. She really looked down on, frowned upon the word pecan, because she would always say that's something you put under the bed. Um, (laughs) My father was from South Georgia. It was always pecan. So no matter how I said it, one parent or the other corrected me. So so your mom would have frowned on me, because I I say yes. Yeah, well, it depends. Yeah, pecan. Yeah, but the other thing I notice is when it's pie, people will almost always say pecan pie, but but they'll say pecan when they refer to the nut. I don't know why. People are weird. Got me on that one. I don't have any more uh, questions, but I don't know if Kenny does. I'll give Kenny the floor. Well, I got a question. Uh, how you guys feel about banana pudding? So I have, I've had my stepmom, she makes banana pudding, baked banana pudding. But then I've had banana pudding that someone made and they left it cold and it has strawberries in it. Strawberries? What? Yeah. what? It has strawberries in it. Somebody went to buy bananas and they didn't have any nice ones. Well, the difference there is with the hot banana pudding, it's got meringue on top and has to be baked. Right. And if you top it with whipped topping, you can't put that in the oven. So it has to be cold. Right. This person said that this is the way their family's made it for a long time. They made the banana pudding and it had the, the uh, cookies on top, wafers on top, bananas, and in the bottom it had strawberries. Oh, that's interesting. And it was good. Yeah. It was good. Yeah. I had I never bet. heard of it before, though. And I asked my grandmother about it. She thought I was crazy. Yeah. Where's her, where, oh, the first question I'd always have to ask, where are your people from? My folks are from the South. My folks are from Louisiana and Arkansas, but her, her people are from um, Tennessee. Ah. Hmm. Her people are from hmm. Tennessee. So, hmm. 
I don't know where that came let's from. Let's don't. Let's not slander. Let's not slander people from Tennessee. That's where my mom's from. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> no, nothing against anybody from Tennessee. I, I've never, <laughs> and I've never been to Tennessee. I have a, one of my best friends from Memphis, and he had never heard of it before. He, he he's used to the banana pudding that we've all had. But yeah, she mm-hmm. said that, that was their family recipe there from uh, Tennessee. Now let me ask you this. Can I ask you that one back? Yeah. Did your family serve ambrosia at Christmas? And if they did, did it have marshmallows and a bunch of crap? No, we didn't. We, no, I've never had ambrosia. No, no ambrosia. Was that was that totally a white thing? Because my family always did. I think it is. I that's one. And when I when people ask me the difference between soul and southern, I point to ambrosia as something I just don't ever really see. Right. In, in black restaurants. No. Huh. I can't think of one soul food joint that had it. I, no, I no, I wouldn't have seen it. As, but, it but it was definitely always there at Christmas. Yeah. And it was always oranges, coconut, and chopped up pecans and sugar and, you know, like sherry. We didn't chunk it up with a bunch of stuff like, you know, marshmallows and grapes and crap like that. can't believe I forgot this question, especially because I eat so much of it. Uh, fried chicken. I want to know about, I want to know about the history of fried chicken. And I've read like different things that it came in West Africa. They were frying chicken already. And then some people, not all the settlers, but some settlers, I, I don't remember if it was a Scots-Irish or whoever, but, but I've heard all these different stories about the origination of um, Southern fried chicken and which groups combined to make it. If it was already something that was already being made in a familiar form in Africa or if it's uh, who brought what to it. Do you guys know um, about <coughs> that and, and how that evolved as well if it evolved differently for white people and differently for black people in the South? I know a lot about that, but I'll let Kathleen go first. No, no, you go first on this one. Because okay. I don't see any reason why it wouldn't have started in Africa. Well, so... Yeah, it was oil. It, this is one of those uh, this is one of those foods that falls victim to a lack of early documentation. So one of the strongest arguments for West African origin of it is that there were chickens, certainly in West Africa by the time of the slave trade. And there was a deep frying tradition. But if you look at uh, descriptions of how West Africans made fried chicken or prepared chicken, it's just it's more like a fricassee than uh, fried chicken as we understand it. Mm, that the makes sense stew, because what you're saying. That makes sense because Haiti is very um, African. Yeah. One thing about Haiti, unlike America, we didn't really have multi-generational uh, slaves. So uh, Haitian culture is very surprisingly African, even after all these years. And I know the exact type of chicken you're talking about. Um, yeah. We, we, we have fried chicken and it is what in America they call they call a fricassee. Because I'll never forget my mom. Because, uh, you know, I, I was born and raised. I grew up in, in America. So I had sudden fried chicken in my head. Right. And my mom, I, I asked her one time. I was, I said, I'm going to go get some fried chicken. She goes, oh, I can freaking fried chicken. And she made it. And I was like very mad. It was <laughs> it was like a fricassee. Yeah. So the earliest written recipe for fried chicken in English is from a British cookbook in the 1740s. So, you know, almost uh, 80 years before the quintessential American recipe that appeared in the Virginia Housewife in 1824. So... Uh, that's why some people believe that there's a British or Scottish origin for the fried chicken that comes over with uh, Scott Irish uh, settlers and the, those that and a lot of them were slaveholders. And so they probably passed on this technique to their enslaved cooks and then eventually African-Americans embrace it. But, you know, this is just not well documented. So it's just hard to really sort that out. But is as the, much I, as I, is the yeah. idea that they just picked up and duplicated the uh, Scots-Irish thing? Or is it that they mixed it with the West African fricassee thing and created something new? Like, like what is the idea nah. there? Is it, is, it a, is it a medley or is it more they just ran with the Scots-Irish version? Well, the reason why I think it's they ran with the Scots-Irish version is if you look at food descriptions before European contact, and there are some, thanks to Arab traders who were in the region and took notes, you just nobody talks about them making fried chicken as we understand it. So the only, as far as evidence, if, if, you know, that's important, then the only evidence we have is a written recipe from Britain and some, no, there are some references in other sources of Scottish people making a dish called fried chicken. Um, I, I, so, mean, I mean, it makes sense if the West African fried chicken that you're talking about, the fricassee is the same thing I'm thinking about that the Haitian people make. It doesn't really bear much resemblance. I mean, I've grown to, oh, I've grown to appreciate it, you know, but it, it is, it is very different. But um, yeah, that was my last question. That was my. Yeah, last I think question. The, for when it comes to fried chicken, it's, it becomes one of those um, regional things again because everything has its origin somewhere else, except for when it gets to where we get to like the eighteen twenties, eighteen thirties. Things start changing. So the the history that I, as far as modern day fried chicken, was like seventeen thirty, it was like some Scottish Scott Irish. 
type of thing. But it never really explained the, how they did it. And I always want to look at the way they did it as compared to the way we do it now, because the way that we make fried chicken now with flour and eggs and some people, it's so there's a difference between pan fried chicken, deep fried chicken, then you got buttermilk fried chicken, which I can't stand. I do not like butter, buttermilk fried chicken. <laughs> I can't stand it. But it depends on where you lived and where you were at. You know what I mean? So there's a, I read, had this book and I, I can't remember where it is, but I had this book and it talked about how um, there was a plantation in um, Louisiana where they, there was a slave. The big guy had big plantation. They would have these big balls, you know, those 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 big old balls that they would do down in New Orleans and things like that. And they would have uh, the slaves would cook this fried chicken. And the way they described it was really similar to the fried chicken that we eat today. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. But it really does because in my family, we don't use buttermilk. Nobody in my family, we don't make buttermilk fried chicken at all. The only time I've ever seen buttermilk fried chicken was at white soul food restaurant. <laughs> I went to I went to I was in Miami. I was in Miami in uh, in Liberty City, which is overwhelmingly African-American population. And uh, so food spots that I went there were making pan fried chicken. There's a restaurant there there's called pan, MLK. There's a pan fried chicken in New York. It's called Charles Pan Fried Chicken in, um, in uh, I Harlem. S- I so much want to have that fried chicken, man. I've tried to go there several times. He's always been closed. I hate to say this. Um, oh, it wasn't that great. I'm so oh. Um, maybe it's just me. I don't know, but it it's not bad. Don't get me wrong, but I trek to go there. So, so when, when you start trekking to go someplace, because Harlem's not like easy for me to get to from Brooklyn. I mean, I already start wanting it more, like, you know, and I gotta say it wasn't bad. It was good, but it wasn't worth trek. But then the sides were um worse than the chicken. I, I was not. Worse than the chicken? So, so they didn't have good cornbread even? Nah, and nothing. I mean, the, the, the mac and cheese was like stovetop style, if I remember correctly correctly it was um yeah i i was i was i was kind of dis- disappointed so there, there's, and, a, there's, there, there's a spot called uh fats up in seattle i don't know if you guys ever heard of it oh, yeah. uh-huh. fats up uh, it's in the central district their fried chicken is pretty good it's decent mlk in liberty city in miami their pan fried chicken is off the hook what's the name of the spot it's called mlk okay it's in liberty city and it's one of those spots that um that church rush crowd so um <laughs> they close by 12 o'clock or rather close wow. Wow. They're closed by one o'clock. By one o'clock, they're closed. They open at about that's nine. By one o'clock, they're closed. And I just, I was in Miami at that time and, <laughs> and it was my first time being in Miami. So I was asking everybody like, yo, man, where's the soul food spot? I'm in Miami Beach. And they're like, they ain't around here. You got to go to Miami Gardens. <laughs> so I was like, Miami Gardens. I'm like, he was like, you got to go to like, you know, Overtown, Liberty City. And the first thing that went in my mind, because I'm from out here is first 48, the show. I'm like, oh shit, I got to go over there. But then when I yeah. got there, I was like, oh, I should have been here. But it's the same way as when I tell someone in LA, I'm, I was born in Inglewood, California. So when someone tells me where's all the socials, like, you got to go to Watts. Yeah. You know, you got to go to South Central. And they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to go there. And I'm like, dude, nothing's going to happen to you. Just go eat. You know? So it was, <laughs> right. it was the same way when I got to Miami. It was like MLK was the spot. And, I, and what's funny is... I've talked to people on Twitter that are from Miami and they're talking about restaurants and I named that restaurant. They've never been there. And then I realized because Liberty City is a place where, you know, it could be kind of sketchy. So I think a lot of people are so used to not wanting to be in these certain areas. And what people don't understand is that sometimes them is a place you got to go to get the good food. Yeah. Got to go to them places where it's probably a good idea if you get your ass out of there before dark. I I, I try to add Southern food in a place called Yardbird in Miami. Yeah, I was going to say Yardbird was... I was thinking about too. Yeah, I I I really like the uh, Yardbird. I, I I'm going to say something about fried chicken. I feel sacrilegious for for myself. Upends everything I believed about fried chicken. And uh, I keep wanting to wrap up, but fried chicken is like a favorite topic of mine. But for the longest time, I never liked any place that was remotely upscale that tried fried chicken. I always feel like fried chicken. The more upscale you try to make it, the more upscale the place, the worse it is. And like the past five years or so, they've really upended that for me. There's a lot of places that are like <laughs> trained chefs and you know they'll be like um run by like white people who went to like cooking school and stuff and it's like some of the like best fried chicken i've had like like there's three places now that are my favorite fried chickens in new york and i think only one of them is black owned uh peaches hot house the second one is Commodore, which is um, white owned. And another one is, I just tried this one. Uh, actually, a fan of the show. He Barter Corsi's Sidecar in Park Slope. Really, really good fried chicken. Those are like my uh, three favorites now. But I feel like a, like a trader. Like I never liked bougie fried chicken, but <laughs> they've been stepping. I, I don't know if you guys have a similar experience. And by the way, I, I'm done. That's my last question. Yeah, no, no. I mean, to me, it's kind of just, it's just because Southern food is so popular. Um, you've seen a lot of white chefs getting into that. 
said, but I, I see the same thing with barbecue. I mean, there are more fine dining trained chefs doing barbecue than I think was the case like 25, 30 years ago. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's become this grail quest thing. It's, you know, there's a, there's a certain amount of um, chest beating when it comes to barbecue among oh, yeah. the chef world. Yeah, as a macho connotation too. Yeah, that's what, you know, uh, up here in Portland, that's what the, uh, I was telling you guys about that place called the Tropicana and now it's called the People's Pig and they have the worst barbecue I've ever had in my life. <laughs> it's horrible. It's, but then there's Keys Loaded Kitchen and uh, Keys Loaded Kitchen is a, actually I've known her since I was in middle school. Her name is Kiana and she does her brisket, her, ri- I mean, she's legit, but she just has a cart and what she does is she'll tell everybody at the beginning of the day, this is what I'm cooking today and when it's gone, it's gone and it's sold out by lunch, you know, lunch lunchtime rush. Those are usually good places. Yeah. Those places that uh, don't cater to you, sadly. Yeah. Those are the ones usually the best. Um, so do you guys have any last thoughts you want to uh, share before we let you go? Either one of you, any um, things you want to plug? I'm going to have to make some corporate. Uh, yeah, I just want to let your uh, listeners know that I have a book I'm writing on the history of African-American barbecue that's called Black Smoke, African-Americans in the United States of Barbecue, and it will be out uh, next spring, probably late April, early May. So well, good. Out. I was going to ask you, Adrian, what, if yeah. you had a date. Yeah, late mid-April or late spring, or late or early April to May, something around there. Don't have an exact date yet. Yeah, I'm going to put Kathleen's cornbread article into the show notes, but I'm also going to uh, read and put the macaroni and cheese one in there in there as well. But uh, you, have, you have some books too, right, Kathleen? I do. Uh, I did a book a few years ago um, on um, small craft distilleries called um, Distilling the South, and it's kind of uh, touring the South through the lens of, of small distilleries. And I also did two books in the Savor the South series, one on pecans and one on bourbon. And actually, there's I recently found out, Adrian, you had asked me at the time I was doing Distilling the South, there's a, now a very good um, black and female-owned Tennessee whiskey distillery called Uncle Nearest. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. worth looking into. How is that spelled? Uncle what? Nearest, like the like nearest. N e a r e s t. And great history. They're doing some really good um, whiskey. And I went to a dinner at Lee and Louise recently. That was a Uncle Nearest dinner. And great story. Well, well worth looking at them. Okay, cool. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to find that if I can. Um. Oh, did, have you tried either of you uh, Yardbird in, in Miami that I was talking about? Because I heard I heard one of you make a noise. When I, I I know about it. I haven't had it. My family's from South Florida, so I get down there from time to time. But it's it's been a while since I've been to Miami. Um, West Palm Beach is more, you know, where I go to see my folks. Yeah, yeah. I know about it, but I haven't made there either. Yeah, that was the first upscale place that I tried fried chicken and I liked it and I felt like a, a traitor. And since then, it's been like three other times. So I've just made peace that, you know, chefs can make it after all. Uh, but yeah, thanks for uh, joining us. I really, really appreciated it. And uh, thank you, Ken, as usual, for popping through. And I hope you guys get to come back again uh, to talk about something else when we think about it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed doing it. Okay, awesome. Thanks for having us. No problem. Take care. All right, peace. <laughs>